0: ABC Listen, podcasts, radio, news, music, and more. I grew up watching the British interview TV show Parkinson on the ABC, and I still remember its most glorious moments quite vividly. Michael Parkinson's generous style of interviewing made some of the most private people in the world feel secure enough to tell their funniest and most risque stories and to reveal their vulnerabilities. But Parkey was never all that interested in going for what's known as the celebrity sob, which is why it was so extraordinary that when Parkinson himself was being interviewed, that he should burst into tears talking about his dad, John William Parkinson. And now he's written a book about John William Parkinson, Yorkshireman, minor, humorist and fast bowler. Because of the COVID crisis, I spoke with Parkey down the line to his home in the UK But the internet wasn't having one of its best days that day, and we were only able to connect for a short time before the bit of string between our two tin cans got cut. I talked with Parkey about his early life and his much-loved dad, the Yorkshire miner who enjoyed a laugh and a pint. But above all, he loved cricket, and his fondest hope was that his only son, Michael, might one day play for Yorkshire. Instead, Michael Parkinson became a journalist and then Britain's most famous TV interviewer. The book that Parkey wrote with his son Mike is called Like Father, Like Son, A Family Story.
1: Michael Parkinson, welcome to Conversations. Thank you, thank you. It's a, it's a reminder of, of the, the old man. Well, why I cried, that, that's really the genesis of the book in, in a way. I mean, why did I cry 40 years after the death of my father, having thought that I'd stowed the grief away, that it had gone forever, for it to to arise at that moment in time when the interviewer asked me, a clever question, actually. He didn't say, when your dad died, how do you feel? He said that at the moment when your dad died, can you remember what you saw? And then it was that image that came into my mind of my father being carried downstairs by two guys. Uh, My father was in a plastic bag. And I shouldn't have been there. I shouldn't have seen it, of course, but I did. And that image, that awful image of someone you love dearly, being transported like a wardrobe <laughs> out of your life, i am buried, I thought. And how little I knew about grief. I mean, that's what you learn as you progress through life about things that really haunt you and that are very difficult to understand. Grief is one of those things that I've never dealt with it before. And I thought by shoving it away that I, I kind of done with it. Not in the sense that I would forget my father, I would never do that, but in the sense that I dealt with the grease side of it. I dealt with the, the tears and I dealt with the, that moment you, you, you lose somebody forever. Well, then they are 40 years later... And also to do a simple question, I start boring my nose. I don't say I mean what does what has happened here?
0: Were you a surprise as anyone the... in that moment that you would burst into oh, yeah, tears?
1: Totally. I mean I couldn't I mean I knew that Pierre Piers Morgan interviewed a very good interviewer. Your son points out how often you've
0: asked the questions of your male guests about their dads. When you started work on this book, what kind of approach did you want to take?
1: I, mean, I had a curious kind of genesis because when we were discussing the shape of the book, Michael and my son, Michael, my, my son is my is my, my boss, really, you know? He runs my life and he runs our production company and, and all that. And he, and he tackled this this job you know, from a different perspective to me. He he looked at the, the history of mining, if you like it, looked at the importance old miners in our society. You know, in Britain we we, we, we took them for the granted. You know, there are these moles who lived underground, and my father's one of those people who went down a hole in the ground. So it was, it was that, that area that Michael had been exploring while, while I'd, I'd been just thinking of other things. I just want to go back to that moment when
0: you fell into tears about your, your, your dad in that interview with Piers Morgan. When you think of your dad at his happiest, what image do you have of him in your mind?
1: When I, I, I look back at my father and, and what I remember was just the contentment he had doing the simple things. For instance, it would be his idea of paradise to sit behind the bowler's arm at Laws or Headingley watching a match between England and Australia. He would then be the most blissfully happy man in the universe. And that was a simple enjoyment of life. If the work of the coalface
0: was, was hard and horrible back in those days, how serious were coal miners like your dad about their leisure activities?
1: Very much so. I mean, the thing about living in the mining village is that, you know, people didn't play cricket just for fun or grow parsnips just to eat or tomatoes to eat. I mean, you know, the trick was to have the biggest tomatoes and the best parsnips in the pit village you were in and, and win an award. I mean, prove to the the rest of them that, that you were the best and they would like play cricket as well. I mean, cricket became cricket was a very important part of our culture and about pointing out to the rest of the world that we were you know, better than them. Uh, And that was the thing. It's a very competitive life that you led. Um, And I suppose a lot of it was to distract attention from the reality of life, because it wasn't pleasant. I mean, to work in the hole in the ground in it. And double in a seems only two and a half feet high or three feet high, like my dad did, digging coal, ten hours a day, it's is not, is, is not good.
0: And yet for all that you say, I, you can't think of another place that you'd have rather grown up in.
1: I like the feeling that you were part of a, a situation that cared. You know, no no child was an orphan in that place at all. Uh, we were going through our daily routine and the, the pit siren would sound, which was the indication something had happened in the pit, an accident or a death or whatever. And, and the village froze. it wasn't just my mother who stopped ironing and wondered if it was bad news. It was all of us. So there was a shared responsibility, if you like, one to the other, which is often talked about and romanticized, but in fact was real and made for a community that cared. Now, to grow up as a child in that, to be free, to run around and and not to be be afeard, was what I remember. And um, I carried that sense of security with me, I think, throughout all my life.
0: Your your book is called Like Father, Like Son. But are you really that much like your father? Because it seems, reading your book, you're more driven, like your mum. Is that right?
1: Mm, That would be absolutely right. But the title was almost a sardonic question. And it happened when my father was dying, and, and I went upstairs one night to talk to him and drank a bit of his medicine, which didn't do anything up at all. And we we got talking and banging away, and, and he had his hand outside the covers on the bed uh, with the palm turned upwards, and I just put my hand on his and just felt how the rough texture of his hand, a horny hand, a working man's hand, uh against my own, and the thoughts, and it, I sort of thought, I wonder what I'm going to write about this, it's, it's, and it's called Like Father, Like Son. And as I said, there's a sardonic twist to that. It doesn't mean, yes, oh, yes, I'm not. I'm not. I wasn't at all. Was your mum ambitious for you and for your dad as well? Well, she was. I mean, she was frustrated, and her ambition came out of a frustration she had that she should have gone to university, and she certainly would have done nowadays. She's a very bright, intelligent woman, but her brother, who was also a bright, intelligent man, was sent off to the university with as much money as the family could rustle up to pay for him. They were still paying up about 20 years later. So my mother had to go out to work to support the family and all that. She carried that with her like a millstone for the rest of her life, and, and, and it made her, at times, a dissatisfied a woman. My father never was. My, my mother was. She... She she felt the pain of, of being who she was at the time that she was born. Uh, she started uh, designing fair out knitwear from home from our house, and she had a very good freelance business going uh, for the rest of her life. And she she did what was very successful. When she died, we found this store of patterns knitting patterns that she designed uh Modelled by people like Paul McCartney and, and people <laughs> like that. You know, there's, S- uh, there's S- sorry, Paul, McCart- Paul McCartney
0: modelled your mother's knitwear?
1: Yeah, yeah, of course, wow. Paul McCartney and Roger, Moore, and Roger Moore. Well, I mean, Paul McCartney was, was photographed wearing one. And so we found all these things in in her box, you know. And, and, and I mean, I, I, she told me about it, but it was an indication of, of this, how successful she had been. So she was thwarted. So she lived her ambition. She channeled her ambition to me and to my dad. she. I mean, my dad was not ambitious. I was. There's a difference. Uh, I had more reason to be ambitious than my father because I had more hope than he had. But nonetheless, she grabbed over my dad and she said, listen, you know, why don't you be a boss? And he didn't want to be a boss. He wanted to be a, a miner. He wanted to be one of the lance, of course. And I understand that. It was terribly important. But she convinced him he should be a kind of under-manager. And, and she made him take the examinations. And he wasn't a bookish person, my father. And I, I remember doing my homework, sitting at a table. And at the other end was my mum and my dad and my mother driving my father, literally, through a book on mining so he might pass his examinations. And he did. And she was happy with that. The extraordinary thing about my mother was she was so ambitious about me and wanting me to do everything, you know, make a name for myself, or did da did that when I came to the point where I said, I'm leaving this local paper, I'm living at home, and I'm going to live in Doncaster... She said, well, can't you do it from home? She had this uh, wonderful <laughs> drive and, uh, and imagination, but she couldn't bear the thought of me leaving the house. Something how crazy
0: is that? <laughs> what would your dad like as a storyteller, as a raconteur?
1: He was great. Yeah, He loved, he loved yarning, you know, he loved talking, and, and and he was very good at it, you know part spawned terrible and lies, as a, as a father, I know, too. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, I, I the thing about my dad, when I think back about him, of course, and then you, you relate to yourself as a father, is that he never, ever raised his hand to me. He never, ever, I can remember him really shouting at me angrily, you know, as if he meant it, um... And any disciplinary action that he he devised against me was totally advised on his behalf by my mother who would say, "Give him a like, really you know, <laughs> and really he wouldn't he'd just walk away smiling you know so I remember that very gentle side of him. Any child who can actually say that grows up into a fairly decent bloke, I think you know, in the sense that you're not troubled by demons.
0: The reason why I ask about the raconteur, because I, I notice how much you enjoy, as an interviewer, hearing a funny story, and I, I just wonder if your dad trained you, in a way, to be a good audience for a really good, funny, funny story.
1: He taught me the virtue of humour and laughter. I remember being going to the cinema with him. He used to love Charlie Chaplin and all those great silent comedians, and I, I used to love them, too. And I remember very clearly, I must have been about eight or nine, being in the cinema with my father. And in the middle of this film, my father was literally on the floor, really overlapping him, <laughs> to the extent where the manager came out. And I had to give him a warning to Strange Future behavior. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was terribly unfair. But, but he was that kind of bloke, you know. He'd, he, if he'd let George something, you knew the way he told the world he'd enjoyed it. And if he was angry about something, you'd know also too.
0: What was he like as a cricketer? The kind of games he played psychologically with his opponents.
1: He, he loved winning, Michael, and loved winning. And he wasn't a sore loser; he was a reflective loser. But he loved winning more than anything. And and, and every game between became a test match on my part. I mean, even when we went on holiday, you know, we'd, we'd find a beach suitable for 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 play on, and then. He would get the tide charts out. So that if he managed to persuade enough people to play against his team, which was a mother of my auntie Marjorie, my uncle Jim and all that, he would actually know the tide situation. Terry important. Because when the tide was in, it was good to bat because you didn't write the all around the corner, went in the sea and that was a four. If, if this tide was out, which went somewhere like two miles out in Scarborough, then they was obviously better to bat in that just more in that situation because they couldn't hit a boundary. So, all these things he would he would put into his computer, and we we're, we were not beaten in, in many years in beach cricket in the ultra. You know.
0: That's extraordinary. The links you'd go to in beach cricket to learn I mean, the I tidal fluxes that's I, amazing. He was
1: extraordinary about that. He was very serious, and also, you know. The beach cricket, he insisted that people play properly. I mean, he didn't want them just funny around. Uh, you know, there was a purpose. We were going to beat this team. We used to play against other boarding houses called Peace Home and things like that, and then thrash them. And if they were Lancashire people, then uh, that, that was great as well. I mean, that, that was really traditional. And he was a happy man. And those were our holidays. That's what we did. My mother kept Wicket with her coat. It sounds silly, doesn't it? But that, those were our holidays. I remember we used to go to a boarding house and they would kick you out at eight or nine in the morning and that was it, you couldn't come back till five five o'clock at night. And often in in Yorkshire, in August bank holiday, the weather was not like you have in Australia. It was, could get a bit windy and nasty. And I remember spending uh, two or three days outside in a bus shelter, watching the rain come down because our beach cricket was impossible. There's nobody (laughs) else there except the Parkinson family sitting there crowding the bus shelter, watching it rain. And yet somehow... Somehow, the Parkinson family, we all enjoyed it because the thing was, that was the holiday. There was no other holiday in the year. You couldn't take time off. You couldn't just walk away or get in a car and drive somewhere nice. My dad had to go down the pit five, six days a week, and that was what he's faced with all his life, which, when I think about it, made him an even more remarkable man than I think he was.
0: Your father was determined to mould you into a great cricketer, and it seems, uh, <laughs> Michael, that your ability as a batsman was so devastating you destroyed two buildings.
1: My father was, was a good, good uh, father, and, and, and no doubt good at his job down, down the pit, a good year of coal. But he was a lousy builder because he never quite understood the, 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 the mathematics of building somewhere. So he would build out of the most ramshackle uh, raw materials and try to build a garage. And it, and what happened to him was he it, it got it up all right, but it, it then creaked and lent. So it, it leaned over, it was like a drunk at a bar. <laughs> so, but both of them I destroyed. We used to play our cricket and football outside against the door of the garage, and on a couple of occasions, a uh, mistimed hook shot. But uh, no, no, nothing deterred. I mean, he would build another one. He, he was remarkable, man. I mean, I, I spent days. So, so, sorry, Mark, can you can you
0: just explain how 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 <laughs> how it was that a hook shot brought down an entire I, garage?
1: I, 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 I pulled it around. I actually I, 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 it's a pull. And I, I, I swam around, pulled it, and I hit the side of the building. I, obviously, in a, in a crucial part, my father had not quite worked out <laughs> the geometry of it. And and the entire edifice came down came down. It happened slowly. It didn't just explode. It you fell know, in slow motion, really. Um, but it was spectacular, nonetheless. So he, he wasn't a very good builder of garages, but then he wouldn't be remembered for that at all.
0: Did you ever tell him that you never intended to pursue a career in cricket?
1: No, I didn't dare. Uh, but I mean, it was quite obvious to me that I didn't have it. I mean, I was a bad player. I, I played for Marseille, uh in the Yorkshire League, which is a very good league indeed. And uh, the next step was was the county. And uh, I played there with Dickie Bird, and, and Dickie and I used to open for Marsey. And then a young chap came along five years after that and called Jeffrey Boycott. And he became the third of the trio that eventually, you know, made a name for ourselves, I suppose, for, for different reasons. And Jeffrey was always going to be a a test player Geoffrey looked like a test player when he was 13 14 Uh, Birdie was going to be an umpire (laughs) Uh, but Dickie was a good player too Uh, and I I was okay I mean I I kept Geoffrey Walker out of the out of the team when I came back from the army on leave and he just made it in the team and they dropped him he's never forgiven me for that (laughs) Geoffrey he carries a grudge he's 80 now and he's still bitter about it (laughs) Um, but no, we're friends. We remain friends. We keep in touch. Uh, we remind ourselves of those days long, long, long ago when we'd sit on the balcony at Barzik and look down over the town, and I just wonder what the future might, might hold. And none of us, not one of the three of us, could have imagined the reality of what happened.
0: What did your mum and dad say once you got a job at the Manchester Guardian, as it was back in those days?
1: My mother was, was, was delighted. My father had great doubts about me being in Manchester at all because i a Yorkshireman. He thought that the, the tribe of people who were called Lancastrians were the enemy. And, of course, it led to a wonderful moment where uh, I'd gone down to London. having uh, left the Guardian to join the Daily Express, Fleet Street, you know, and all this sort of thing. And, and I was very pleased with myself. And Mary I put into a nursing home, and I arranged to go to a nursing home because she was pregnant with our our first child, and, and then I got this phone call for my father, and uh, and he said, uh, job's done. And I said, what job's that? He said, uh, I moved him. I said, you moved who? He said, I moved there, and kid, unborn child. I said, well, why? Where to? He said, well, i put him into a nursing home in Yorkshire. And I said, well, what was the problem with the nursing home in Manchester, which is where we were living at the time? Well, he said, as if I was deaf." Well, don't you know what that means? And I said, no, Dad, I, I'm asking you. He said, if he's born in Lancashire, he can't play cricket for Eosha. That's what, <laughs> as if he was talking to an idiot. Didn't matter in the end. Didn't matter. He said, listen, if he'd wanted to play for he could have done. And that's the point, I'm afraid, when someone
0: probably from next door put on a Netflix movie and technical difficulties intervened. And that's where we had to end our conversation with Michael Parkinson.
1: Podcast, broadcast and online. You're listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler.
0: Hear more Conversations anytime on the
1: ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations.